0: Today, you'll remember those five, and I'll show them to you again shortly, but today's is the one that was entitled Cross-Cultural Collaboration. What does that refer to? Where is it? It's up up in the corner there. For those with eyes to read that kind of print that far away, Cross-Cultural Collaboration. One of the five of these principles... Uh, that fall into this sort of new emphasis. This, and they, they aren't new in and of themselves, but just the emphasis. This sort of, if you will, you know, restatement or packaging or however you want to say, bringing us back to some things. They're calling it the free Methodist way. Sort of to get all the churches to you know, come on back to ground zero. Don't we need that sometimes? It, each church has to do it, and certainly groups of churches and as a whole the body of Christ I mean let's face it we're dealing with human attention spans and we a lot of things to compete and it could be I say it could be easy for people well-intended and good Christian people to get sidetracked a little so we're always coming back coming back to the center point So these five things are designed for that. So this one is cross-cultural collaboration. What on earth could they be referring to? They give a description, but we shall look into it. So let's look then at Acts chapter 1 to launch us into this. Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you. To know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. And look where? In Jerusalem. Which makes sense. That's where they were. And in all Judea. And Samaria. And To the ends of the earth. Thus said the Lord then when they asked him, hey, what now? What's next in the plan? And so that was it. Now, some people will call this passage here the other Great Commission, the other Great Commission, because We sort of know what the, quote, great commission, the better known, right? The first one, the one at the end of Matthew, we typically call the great commission. But in a sense, this is just another one, another uh, giving of a testimony of of some last words that sort of have marching orders in them. And it's funny because he he could have ended that with uh, something else. He could have said, and you will be my witnesses Period. It could have just stopped right there. You will be my witnesses. He could have said, you will be my witnesses wherever you go. You will be my witnesses to everybody you meet. But in fact here, he, he specifies places. Not a lot of places, but the ones he does specify at least communicate this sort of regional expanding influence. You will be my witnesses here where we are in this city, but not just here, out to the outer parts of the of the region, sort of like the whole county, if you will, and not just that, get ready for this one, even over across the tracks where those no good Samaritans are that you don't get along with too well, yeah, you will be my witnesses there. No, you're not going to stop there either. You're just going to keep going. Keep going. How far, Lord? Where is the boundary line? No, to the end. As soon as you fall off the edge of the flat earth. No, that's not what he said. Uh, They they didn't believe in a flat earth. It It took a lot of centuries and a lot of sophistication and enlightenment for us to have a thriving flat earth community today that we have. That's how far we've come. No, but he said when you get to the end of the earth, that's intended to say, I have no boundary line. Well, similarly, we go back to the other commission and what do you get there? You get go therefore and teach or make disciples Hmm. of what people and of how many people and of which people all People, all nations, all ethnoi, plural, all of them, he says. He could have said in that passage, go therefore, all authority is given to me, go therefore and teach, make disciples of, of people, people that you run across, people wherever you, you, know, you meet them. But he, but he goes ahead and specifies, why does he do this in these parting words, both in Matthew now in Acts, why does he specify all nations and to the end of the earth? Seems obvious, doesn't it, that the Lord intended right out of the gate, right from the start, that this church, his church, would be global, that it would be transnational, that it would be multi-ethnic that it would cut across all the borders constructed by men and established by governments, that it would cut right across all the languages and dialects of various peoples, all their different customs. It would just move right across all of that. Those, Those are not recognizable boundaries for the gospel and for this commission. So the Christian concern for missions... Or worldwide missions then is not a late development. It didn't come along later. Christians didn't sort of work this out over time. It wasn't extrapolated from some things written in the Bible or or you know one interpretation of what might be taught in the New Testament. They didn't get together and hammer the idea out, you know, at one of those church councils in the early centuries, or they had to haggle about it and figure it out. What does it really mean? Okay, here's what we think the interpretation of the word is on this topic. In this case, the idea of a global church and of the mission to go out to a global church, to to people everywhere, that was in the DNA of the church right from its birth from its inception it's been there from the beginning it's hard to go back earlier if it's a late development it's about a second late because when they when they're asking lord what now built right into his initial commission to them as to here's what happens now is the emphasis in both passages that are like that we have that so then cross-cultural collaboration being this emphasis. Well, I confess to you that of the five principles that they laid out, this is the one I was thinking I would most be inclined to want to reword. And only really just because the word collaboration, I don't know, just doesn't isn't all that thrilling of a word. It doesn't really do it for you too much. Collaboration. Maybe there's a better word. It, but But even so, even if in my opinion, maybe you could word that a little better. The point of it, the point of it is right. The point of it is is good. And it and it, is, it belongs as as an essential reminder to, to come back to what the church should be doing and how the church should see herself. It says the grounding of missions taking place everywhere. If we do not see the church like this in this way we don't see her at all correctly we've lost sight of the purpose so the way they describe it is they say in their little in their brief description of the principle quote from the beginning as we've just seen right in those passages from the beginning god's intent was to have a people from every nation culture and ethnicity united in christ and commissioned to carry out his work in the world of course when they say from the beginning they're not they're, I think they're thinking beginning not just of the church in her initial instructions I mean they're thinking even bigger picture obviously that this plan is hatched far before you know way back before that we have signs of it even in Israel maybe we'll get to that but let's sort of get to some uh, what can we do about this what do we do what, How do we? how do we obey This idea and this principle. So I got a few simple points here that I think show us some things we can remember, things we can do. And here's what they look like. Maintain, the first one here, maintain a biblical perspective of the church. A biblical perspective of the church. When you think of the church, big C, always see it globally. Globally. And not just narrowly. You know, like like in the Creed, we believe in the universal church. The church catholicos. Catholic. Not, not big C. We say this from time to time to remind people. Not the institution headquartered at the Vatican, which uses that name. But the Greek word found in the New Testament. Which means according to the whole. The universal you know, when you're a kid, if you're raised going to church as a kid, then you, know, you go every week, get up, same routine. and you go, you go to a church, and as a kid, when you think of the church, you only know your church, right? Your church is, you're a kid, you just go every week, it's the only church you know. And when you think about church, when you hear the word church, what do you think of? You think of your church. And, and the, whatever that happens there, the way they do everything, that's all that comes to mind. Is your church? It's all you know. You get a little older, the kid. You know, realizes that, and there's other churches, other people go to. Mine's not the only one. And you know, some of these other churches, they're a little different. They're in all different sizes and meet in all kinds of different looking buildings. Their worship sometimes is a different kind of order. They all they smell a little different when you walk into them. You know. Anybody, the first time maybe if you grew up in church and you just knew only one church and the first time somebody invited you to go to some other church that they went to, and maybe that first time you kind of thought, whoa, and part of your inclination might have been if you're a kid to think, these guys are doing it wrong. Like, what are they doing here? This is all wrong. They're sitting in a bunch of chairs. Where's the pews? You no, know, whatever it was, whatever, whatever differences you encountered. It starts to expand your concept of the church. Well, then you get a little harder, and you figure out there's denominations, entire denominations that do things differently. They it feels different, and they read from this weekly thing, and they kind of sounds like their music has a different style. It's really upbeat, or it's really, or it's high, it's whatever it is. And then of course you get to where, hopefully, you start to even see that across all the national boundaries. Start to understand that the church is, in fact, beyond just the denominations in your country. That it's all around the world. They're worshiping all over the world. So the the key to this first principle that is is to is to refrain as much as you can from from getting uh, from getting the this sort of narrow focus. You're looking through a small lens. And you, when you think about the church, you're concerned about one thing only. I used to make the joke sometimes saying some people are so wrapped up in all the drama and everything only going on right there in their church that if they take a church history class, you know, they think that the first lesson will be the founding of their church. You know what I mean? That's where it started. Let's go back to the very beginning. Yes, it was 1928 when Brother So-and-so... No, church history predated the founding of your church. So you don't want to let your church, your understanding of the church, your perspective become parochial. You understand the concept of the word parochial, which literally refers to a local parish. That's where that word originates, the region of a local parish. They would have the local school, parochial schools for the people in that area. So to think parochially is is to never have the ability to think outside of Just this. And and it it messes up your perspective because we think of the initial commission that was given and how it's talking about the ends of the earth and all the nations. And then you go from, from the beginning of the church to the last vision that we encounter of the church, of the universal church in the book of Revelation, where in Revelation chapter 7, the vision that John sees says this, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're saying, our God, it's a possessive of it's a plural, but it's, it's still a first person. It's all these people from every language, of, but one our God, one God, but all those people. So that is the perspective. Keep that perspective in mind. It's sort of a habit to think, never forget about the church being all over, everywhere. And you don't want to, part of this is to, is to refrain from being so immersed or to allow yourself to be drowned in your culture that you live in every day, the water that you swim in, so much so that you could become ethnocentric. What does ethnocentric mean? Well, it basically is having the kind of perspective that just can't see outside of your own ethnic or cultural scope. A Christian can become so saturated by the culture that he lives in, the culture that she moves in every day, at work, at school, through all of the news and things that are read and entertainment and peers and all of that, can become so immersed that you're more saturated then with that than with biblical truth. So that the person who, who has this problem and this error in perspective, then in thinking about all the different areas of life, what are they tempted to do to presuppose the things that their culture presupposes to sort of bring those things to the into the mix, to bring all those ideas to the table as presuppositions instead of Christian presuppositions which would stand above their culture as it stands above all cultures. That's hard. To maintain that, in her infancy, the church, back in the book of Acts, had to get outside the, the initial believers. Who were they? Where did they come from? Well, they were primarily all Jews from that region. In the very, that, that is the core group. Well, did they have a perspective that was sort of ethnic and you know, guided by how they were. Of course they did. They're just people like everybody else. Of course they did. So early in the book of Acts, it took some convincing. You remember Peter as sort of a vocal leader, but a guy who, he, he, he was somewhat ethnocentric. I mean, he just, all he knew was how he was raised, where he was raised. So he had to be persuaded and God had to sort of, you know, had to really beat down the door to get through to him, to show him this thing is for all the peoples, all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews of the world. It's for them. Remember, he, had, he sees the vision of the big, you know, the big picnic. Now I can't eat any of that stuff. Yes, you, what I have called clean, you can't, you, you must not, for cultural reasons, call it unclean because I've called it clean. And the early church, remember, had to get over the idea that they were going to need to have all new Christians be circumcised. Some things were Jewish custom that were not required. In other words, the Great Commission was not to go, therefore, and also convert all the different peoples of all the different nations to be culturally Jewish in every way that you understand it. That wasn't required. They don't have to start dressing like you thinking like you and all about all their, their, their local stuff and adopting the customs and the habits and even the hobbies that you like. They don't have to do that. They don't have to become Jewish in, in all of these ethnic different ways. The church had to become convinced of it. That John had not written, for God so loved the Jews. Right? It was the world and that's a big place and that's filled with all kinds of different people. That people did not have to become Jews. You know, sometimes the stance that a principled biblical Christian takes on something in his or her own wherever whatever time and place, sometimes the stance that a Christian takes will be jeered, you know, ridiculed by outsiders. Has that ever happened? Has that happened to you? Be jeered, scorned. And and the Christian ends up sort of wearing this shame that people want to heap for being something like out of touch. You're out of touch, but out of touch with what exactly? What they really mean, if they finish the sentence is, oh, you're out of touch with this culture we're in. I mean, that's the real... That's the real context of that. You're behind the times. Which times? These times? Right here? Right now? See, if I'm out of touch only with this culture, so what? Unless this culture is perfect. If we now have perfected all truth if we have arrived in our culture right now to a place where we've solved it all we've got the right view of everything we have no blind spots there's nothing wrong with us we've we have now achieved it then i guess i should be in step with that culture and never depart from it do you believe that about our culture well it's never been true of any culture yet so it's a little bit arrogant it seems to me for us to say that that all cultures in the past got things wrong until now. My friends, that is ethnocentric. That is. So if someone says your your biblical stand is out of step with our present culture, so much the worse for our present culture. So maybe some elements of our culture just you have to turn the tables of your perspective are out of step with the greater consensus of truth. By the way, maybe some things about our culture are out of step with the consensus of other cultures in the world as well. This is another way in which a lot of times people in our culture here uh, are, are arrogantly ethnocentric and they don't realize it because they will ridicule they will, they will sometimes ridicule points of view that are actually shared by other peoples around the world. So it's interesting because you read about occasionally some people in other parts of the world understand this better than we do, and they'll turn the perspective around to show us this. It's interesting that in uh, some of you might have kept up with in 2019 and 2020 over this term. There were some difficult times in the uh, in the United Methodist Church, the, the big denomination that you know formed in the late 60s. Con- combining two denominations into the United Methodist Church. It's a very large denomination, of course. And there was a fracturing of opinion having to do with some of the newer attitudes about life choices and sexual habits and marriage and so on. Now, their book of discipline has never sanctioned uh, ordination of people living in a same-sex relationship nor the performing of those types of marriages. It never has, but of course many... Different United Methodists in some places in the West, primarily in North America and in Europe, have just been defying their Book of Discipline by going ahead and doing those things. And they wanted to change those things. But what happened was they they attempted to push in that direction. And the global consensus of bishops, particularly led by bishops in other parts of the world, not American, not Canadian, not European, but in other parts of, of South Asia and in Africa, in parts of South America, other places, many of those bishops said otherwise. And it's interesting because they, they wrote about this to express why they thought there was something wrong with the with the perspective of the American bishops and what they essentially said, just to paraphrase it was, more or less, they said, look, we, we do not live in your cultures, European, American, Canadian, we don't live there So we don't have those cultural pressures of changes that have happened in your in your cultures recently. We don't we we haven't had those cultural trends. Uh, we see no reason why your culture's trends should be foisted on the world. That's maybe that's that's the ethnic developments among your people where you live. But why should that then be forced upon us? They were basically accusing the bishops of the Western world of seeing this from an ethnocentric perspective. And they had a point. They really had a point. Well, everybody is tempted then, naturally, to see things through their own cultural lens. And the church can be tempted to do that as well. But don't do it. We cannot do it. We don't take our cues from the dictates of our immediate surrounding culture. We have to think bigger. Well, we need to understand how we are unified and how we are diverse. Is the church diverse? Yeah, it's diverse. We just said it's global. It's as diverse as humanity. As diverse as human beings are, that's how diverse the church is. Because the gospel goes everywhere. The church that we're presented with in the New Testament, as we've, we've seen it clearly in these words, it is, it is diverse in all of these ways. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, Every nation and, and all the subtleties that go with it, because all of the subtleties. I mean, there's a million subtleties across the people. You know, how do they dress? What style of music? What instruments they play? Whether what, what art forms do they like the most? How do they spend their free time? How do they do meals? What's what's politeness? How do you greet people? Blah, all of that stuff. It's a million things. It all kind of just is a goes along with those cultural things. That's how we are diverse. But what about in fundamental things. What about in our fundamental beliefs? Purpose. Mission. See, in those ways we are not diverse on those things. On those things, we hold those in common, do we not? We hold those in common. Koinonia. Commonness. It's the word translated fellowship a lot of the time. Commonness. Holding having one accord We share those things. Those things bind Christians of all the tribes, of all the tongues, with all the customs. Those beliefs bind them together. In those, we are unified. As Ephesians 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in all, did you hear the word "one" a few times? So there is not diversity of belief, core beliefs, and mission and purpose. You know, unity there, like we were talking about the the creed that we sang, and Jeremy talking about the word "believe." I believe that is that is it. I believe, and what and what comes next? That's what all the Christians say in all their languages all around the world. The same. Core fundamental beliefs. So that's keeping straight how we are diverse and how we are unified. And people in our world sometimes confuse which kind of diversity they're after. By the way, uh, sometimes and we're, by the way, some people might say, "Well, you Christians are not as open-minded as you think you are because, hey, you won't even allow diversity of fundamental beliefs." Well, we'll allow it politically. We're not we're not holding guns to people around the world saying you might, But but we do not. We, we can't say that uh, Jesus said X when Jesus said the opposite of X, because uh, and that's not closed-mindedness. That's just being reasonable. It just it wouldn't be loving of me to say the Bible says and you fill in the blank what it says. That's not a, that's not open-minded. That's patently ridiculous, because it only says what it says. It can't say the opposite of what it says. And incidentally, we're not the only people who do this. Some of the places today in our world where where they most talk about diversity, they, have, they allow no diversity of opinion and point of view. Have you, have you paid much attention to the consensus of mainstream culture through media entertainment? Have you been to a university campus lately? Their diversity is highly prized so long as it's just the shallow things. So long as it's just the exterior things. But diversity of what you believe, what you hold to be true, no, that will not be allowed. So those around the world in other groups, we see a similar phenomenon. The difference is, I, the church, the church, however, um, doesn't use money and uh, political power and threats to enforce its orthodoxy. If if a person says, I want to believe otherwise, you can simply disfellowship or say, we disagree. uh, But but, but the church should never enforce its orthodoxy by those means. People who claim to believe the things we want them to believe for the wrong reasons are not the kind of believers Jesus sent you in the world to make. Otherwise, he would have said, go you therefore and use every manipulative tool you can to get people to sign this paper. And say they believe X. He wants them to truly believe it. If they believe it for any other reason, this is illegitimate. Well, we've got to show a confused world how to do it. You know, some years ago it became an emphasis to be multi-ethnic. And that that comes from a good place in many ways. And a lot of groups and corporations, as we mentioned, they want to be multi-ethnic. Ethnic and multiracial and everything—they want diversity, right? This is a this is a real emphasis today. People are looking to have fullest possible representation, um, and so in a sense, the church's mandate to go everywhere—it's a little bit of a knockoff. It's not exactly the same, though. It is not necessarily the same. What do I mean? A lot of businesses and universities, corporations, and so on—they want to—they want a diverse um, makeup for appearances primarily. They want the appearance of diversity for its own sake, not for a higher calling, but just for its own sake. And they are willing in many cases to force it or to tweak it or to work just to meet quotas for those sakes and not for a higher purpose. The church is not doing that. The church should not be doing that. The church is obeying a call to the nations, not just trying to meet quotas or look good to the world The the diversity of the church is simply a natural consequence of her mission, not the mission itself. Uh, We do it not uh, so that we can get the accolades of progressive-minded culture around us, but for the glory of God. Frankly, a lot of churches are not, a lot of local churches are not necessarily in a circumstance where they can be all that multi-ethnic, right? Now, personally, if I just had a preference, I'd love nothing more and just get all kinds of people coming into church. I'd love to just look out and see all kinds of different people. I'd love to hear accents everywhere that I could sort of practice doing them myself because I love accents. What can I say? But not just for that reason. But I just, you know what I mean? And, and I mean not for not for the other perks. Like you know, imagine we, we'd have a lot more food fellowships. You know, but because. I don't know. There was just there something would sort of like savor of the of the global church. So yeah, if I could, I'd want to just have all kinds of different people from every place in the world. That'd be cool. But I can't just run around trying to force a thing like that for its own sake. That would be silly. That would that would that would that would, that would make me a shallow person. Like sometimes we accuse, you know you know occasionally rich people are accused, rich or famous people will be accused, and I don't know what's true because you don't know the hearts of people, but they will sometimes be accused of bringing in or adopting a child from a foreign nation to look because of how it makes them look. Now, that may still be that may still help the, pers- the, the child may be helped by that anyway the practice could be practical good but you know that we would all agree that's not, the, that's not the truest motive by which you should operate to do that kind of thing and the church should not be operating from a shallow motive let's get all kinds of different people so we can say look at us wow aren't we great because that's not we've missed the true motive but I, I do confess that I'd love to do it I'd like that that'd be fun for me. I'd think it's great and we certainly should have the doors wide open to it. Definitely. And let's face it, it would be a strong witness to our world right now, wouldn't it? That's why I say by example. Because um, our world today may they, they, you know their ears are stopped up. There's there's they're pretty dim sometimes. Maybe just seeing it would help would help break down some wall. Maybe if they just saw it, they would see, ah, this is the this is the true. ...sense of the, of the sort of knockoff that we're trying to achieve. Well, uh, the last one there is obvious, isn't it? No, nothing, uh, nothing earth-shattering there. We should pray for, support, and send out laborers into the fields. This has got to be a regular part of the church all the time. Again, you don't want your bubble to, uh, to wrap you up so tightly... ...that you forget that the outside world even exists... And, you know, I've known a lot of people in a lot of churches and I've been to a lot of churches and and I was raised in a big, big church. And, and especially in, in a, the way it used to be, in some cases, in a large church, you can really sort of that church can become its own universe. It becomes its own denomination. I grew up. I didn't even know what denomination. I didn't even know there was a denomination. I didn't know anything about it. that church was the whole universe. Because it's got enough internally going on to make, to occupy all of its thoughts and money and drama and concerns and time. There's just enough of a soap opera going on in t- inside that you don't even get around to looking outside. And this is something the church has to fight against. So we want to support people in all kinds of different mission fields. We want to invite them to come and hear from them, as we have here. right? We've had several occasions on Sundays when we listen to people share with us Things going on in other places, and some of those other places, man, it's wild to learn about what how it is in those places, isn't it? And we learn what the church is like in those places, how the Christians are operating in those places, and how it's dangerous in some cases there, and how it's, you know, they've they've got different concerns about their safety and how they go about it, and keeping uh, keeping the the church from uh, you know from all of the different Pitfalls in those places, and so we want to keep doing it. We want to hear from them. We want to we want to let them speak to us about what's happening, how we can be involved, how we can support it. Read their newsletters. Keep up with them. Keep them always in our prayers. When we have we have prayer lists, we should you know be remembering that there are people outside of just us here, and they're facing a lot of things uh, overseas. It can be overwhelming because there's so much of it. Because the world is a big place, and but we learn about it, and you know we can encourage people. And Jeremy said earlier, hey, sometimes you know someone could go with Becky's group, and th- that's just one of lots of opportunities we could avail ourselves. We came we came close before before COVID came along to uh, we were looking at some ideas for trying to take some people from here. We've got to be we've got to be open to it. And proactive in looking at how can we actually take that step even to to go to some of these places. When you you know if you get a chance to make quick or brief visits, and most mission trips are brief. I mean they're a week or two, most of them. You know, uh, that's extremely brief. But but I, I you know some of us you some of you know this. A week can a week can be years worth of enlightenment, education, and perspective. I mean you can. It can break your world open uh, A few days Can really revolutionize How you think And so you go to these places in the world And you you can't think the same Afterward This is a natural biblical trait Of a healthy church That you know You see it happen it's, it's, And it's not like Oh it's not just the American church Oh we do it Every, All around they do it I'll never forget one time overseas on one of these trips, we were talking to these different missionaries, and they were saying, you know, um, they were showing us secret video, okay, private video, of people crossing the border into Iran. Dangerous business. And able to go in there and successfully run house churches and do these things in Iran. And I said, wow, who are these missionaries doing this work and they were watching this video and they were talking to people in Iran and how they and and looking at the house churches meeting I said who's doing this they said it's all Korean believers doing this the Korean church the Korea these Korean believers have found a way to do it we couldn't get in there we've been trying to find avenues that that won't get you killed to get in there, and it still could get to jailed or killed, but they said the Koreans have effectively, they know how to go, they know where to go, they know the circles to move in, they've learned the culture, and they're crossing those borders, they're doing it. So all—so you see, all the peoples of the world, where the church goes, the church then becomes, in all those places, the sending agent, those places all become launch pads for missionaries. See? There are so many missionaries that will go to some place and if it's in Papua New Guinea or somewhere and one tribe of people can become can become so um, can can really take the missionary mandate upon themselves. And then they say, we're reaching that tribe and we're reaching that tribe and they hate us, but we're going anyway. (laughs) And we used to kill each other, but we're going And the missionaries who might have originally gone say, Hallelujah, we're praying for you. Because they can't do that. You know, some guy who grew up in Memphis, you think he's going to go to all those tribes? No. But those people can go to all those tribes. And they do. And that's the glory of it. The church is universal all around the world.